Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... I'm Peter Devine. Uh, I'm the uh, CEO of Uniseed, which is a, a venture fund operating out of some of Australia's leading research organisations designed to not only you know, help move stuff out of those organisations, but then to take them all the way through to exit. And we've had some uh, big successes there. I've... Uh, you know, been involved initially with the biotechnology industry in Australia and more recently with more into the startup ecosystem for about 40 years now. Um, and uh, I've, I've been in four Australian biotech companies. Probably the, the most successful of those was a company called Pan Bio, which was a diagnostics company that was sold to Inverness Diagnostics, a multinational, which is now known as Alia. Uh, you know, very well respected and regarded, I guess, story and, and exit for investors there. And um, initially started as a in a research career and worked as a R&D manager in some of those companies, but then moved into the business development side, particularly with Pan Bio. Uh, you know, a lot of the selling was technical selling and training distributors uh, all around Southeast Asia and South America. So that kind of got me out of the lab you know, 20 years ago and into the business side of things. Uh, and then also had a stint at Progen, which is a publicly listed company as, as VP of business development. And from there, ended up at Uniseed. Um, and I've been involved with Uniseed now, you know, approaching up to getting close to 20 years. And so that that's kind of my background, you know, starting off with, bio, with uh, research and companies and then moving into the venture capital side of things. You have a very, very rich history in the, the research side. I'm looking back through your education and um, some of your early 
experiences on your LinkedIn page. And I'm curious to understand what prompted the switch from the research side to the investment running the business side. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, uh, if anything, it, was, it wasn't a plan. At some point, I made a decision to move that way. But, but being with a company called PanBio, we developed a, a diagnostic test for dengue fever. And it was the world's first diagnostic test, commercially available diagnostic test for dengue fever. And in some way, we had to go and educate the medical profession and the pathology labs. And that required a fairly technical I guess, sell and education. And so I, as R&D manager, took on that role. And I, and I initially, you know, met with the WHO and the FDA and the CDC and the Pan American Health Organization, you know, a lot of the leading organizations, uh, you know, that needed to, I guess, accept that diagnostic test or endorse it. And, and then from there, you know, moved on to train distributors uh, in all throughout Southeast Asia and, and South America where dengue fever occurs. So so I, I took on that technical selling role and then I guess got a bit of a, you know, a liking for it and, and made a conscious decision to to move out of the laboratory. And the, the next job I got after that was with Uniquest, which was the technology transfer arm of the University of Queensland. And from there, into a role of VP of business development with uh, a publicly listed company that was developing a cancer drug. So it was kind of just getting exposure, uh, having a PhD. And and at the time when I started to do this type of work, doing an MBA to kind of supplement that and, 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 you know, making that, getting exposure to it and then making a conscious decision that, you know, this is really where I want to go. You, you mentioned you, you know, your forty years experience. You've even been at Uniseed for coming up on twenty years in in a couple of years. Yeah. That predates what we would even your time at Uniseed even predates what we would understand as today as the Australian startup ecosystem. Most most people date the beginning, or as we kind of understand it to be today, the beginning around two thousand and ten, two thousand and twelve. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Why, why is that? Why is that interesting to you? Oh, look, I think, uh, you, you know, I um, I did honours back, you know, finished honours back in 1982, but went from there, you know, after having a, a job for about a year at the uni, I went to a company called Biotech Australia, which was a an interesting, a, a, I think at the time, you know, it was set up in some ways to be Australia's Gen- Genentech, which is the leading recombinant DNA biotech company in the world at the time. And it was set up by a big mining company, um, CRA, who put up, you know, $5 million a year for many years. And that back in those days was a lot of money. So, and from there I went, you know, th- this was um, in the early 80s. And from there I went to another biotech uh, called Medical Innovations, which was a listed biotech company. So, so I guess there was a lot of activity. There was still a lot of biotechs around at the time. Um, I don't think there was a as an active as active of there wasn't an active venture capital uh, industry in Australia. But certainly there were companies around being funded either by the public markets or by, in the case of Biotech Australia, by large mining companies. Just kind of if you like diversifying into biotech. So. Mm. And since that time, I've been involved with biotech companies, you know, from the early 80s all the way through to now. So I think the, 
the industry goes back a, a fair way, a fair bit further, perhaps. Yeah, uh, and Uniseed is kind of described as a venture capital fund or firm on the on its LinkedIn page. Is that how it started out as a venture capital? No, no, it's evolved. It's an interesting story. Um, initially, Uniseed was set up in two thousand. It was before my time, but it was set up by two universities, Queensland and Melbourne, who put up ten million dollars each and really gave that money to the technology transfer offices to set up Uniseed. Mm. And the idea was it was set up to solve a problem, which was to bridge the gap, you know, this valley of death between an invention at a university and what we now say, you know, to a point where something's investable. So the idea was Uniseed would put small amounts of money into these projects and, and develop them a little bit further so then they could raise money from the more traditional, you know, investment market. I think what when I came along, you know, Uniseed had spent most of that $20 million, and that was only five, you know, not many years later. But what I think they'd learnt was that they'd lost a lot of money and, and, and that model of just, you know, seeding things, putting a little bit of money in, very important that proof of concept work gets done. So effectively it was a proof of concept fund but really not not a way to make money. So I got involved and we changed the model. You know, um, uh, we, we employed a management team to do proper due diligence. We increased the investment limit so we could invest all the way through the whole cycle of the, the, the startup's life. We beefed up the investment committee to make better decisions and started a new fund in 2016 where we brought in New South Wales Uni and also at the time a super fund in Western Australia called West Scheme. And, um, you know, that fund ran for 10 years and was very successful in that it had some high-profile exits in uh, Fibrotech, which got sold to Shire, a UK uh, pharma company, in a deal worth over 500 million US. Spinifex, which was a UQ company that got sold to Novartis in a deal worth about a billion dollars Australian. And, and then Hatchtech, which was a uh, a head lice treatment out of the Uni of Melbourne that got sold to Dr. Reddy's labs in 2015. So, you know, can I'll preempt something, but I think that period in 2014-15 when we had those successes really changed the whole landscape and, and triggered a whole lot of change in Australia, mm. which was very positive. But, yeah, so Uniseed started off as something else, but but morphed, is evolved into uh, into what we call a commercialisation fund. And the reason we say that, more often than venture fund, we act just like a venture capital fund, but but it's to highlight that part of our mandate is to invest and make money and return the money, but it's also to help facilitate commercialization of the intellectual property developed by our partner research organizations. Yeah. In that answer there, you, you did mention near the beginning there's gaps yeah. and I, I just want to drawing on all of your experience today what do you see as some of the biggest gaps within I want to say you know the the whole startup ecosystem as you see it but maybe also more from your perspective as an investment firm yeah look I think uh, look if I if I initially focus on research organizations you know I think the problem is there's a lot of really smart people in these organisations who invent things, but those inventions are just not at a stage where where an investor, you know, 
is ready to, to, to put money in. And that's all related to that balancing the risk, you know, versus reward. Mm. And, and so I think, you know, one of those gaps is, you know, just getting those inventions to a point where people are ready to, to put their hard money up. And, and, and that often just means, you know, some de-risking steps, you know, experiments or, or whatever. And so that's probably, you know, tech, not technically a gap a lot of those inventions are what I call solutions looking for a problem. You know, they, mm. they're really exciting bits of tech, but it's like, well, you know, what's the market? Who's the customer? And I always like to say what I've learned over the years is to say it's got to be something a customer needs, not something they want. You know, it's got to be a, a need to have, not a nice to have. And so it's developing up that business plan or or really where are we going to focus this technology to make our money? So that's that's probably one gap. I mean, I think, you know, some of the others uh, in, in general in the startup ecosystem, I think there, there's often a, you know, there's a, there's a skills gap, uh, you know, finding people who are experienced and, and, and this has improved over the years, but people who are experienced and have done it before, doesn't mean they were successful before, but at least have been through the process and, you know, can can help drive that company forward. I think funding is still a problem. You know, I think at the early stages, funding is difficult, but, but even getting large licks of money, depending on what it is, there's a lot of money around for, you know, SaaS and B2B mm. uh, for IT. But, you know, if you're developing what we like to call deep tech, there, there isn't as much money around as perhaps there can be. So finding those big chunks of money to really accelerate development is often a gap. Yeah, when we're talking about deep tech, is that because the people feel that the risk is higher or, and also how long it will, how long it takes to develop? I think that's the time is definitely it. I mean, often with um, I, IT, um, you know, and we've had a lot of the success stories at Lassian and, uh, Canva, you know, they're, they're in that space, you know, you're getting massive, you can get massive scale and massive reward fairly quickly. Mm. I think with deep tech, it's a, it's a much more challenging problem. First of all, you're building something, often it's a big piece of kit, uh, but then you've got to go and, you know, start selling it and rolling it out. And, and that sales process is often a lot more difficult and a lot longer you know, than, than an, you know, an IT type project. So, yeah. so I think that the rewards can be there. Um, I think it's the, the, the time and, and every bit of deep tech is different. You know, that's the other thing. It's, it's not a standard model of how you commercialize these things or how you make money out of them. So you've got to figure that out quite often. I am... In the next couple of weeks, having a, a chat with a guy named Peter Davidson, he's yep. one of the founders of Fishburners, and I got a really long email from him um, with some divisive views in there. Um, he's, got, he's got some very strong opinions about where we are today. Right. And I, I'm just curious to know if you have not necessarily unpopular opinions, but things that, is there something that you just wholeheartedly believe to be true within this space, but it's no one seems to be on the same page as you. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. I think <laughs> I, I, I probably, because I'm playing down, particularly at that early stage, even though we take companies all the way through, as you can imagine, a lot of them fail before they, they get there. And that's 
the whole purpose of our model, right, is to fail early. But mm. but I think, um, you know, I do get a little frustrated. I think there's a little naivety about, you know, university or research organisation output. And there have been some really great successes, but I think that people just think there's, you know, pots of gold, uh, you know, in terms of intellectual property lying around that is untapped. Mm. And I, I don't think people really appreciate the, the risk and, and, and you know, the, the large number of failures that occur in this space. Um, and I think there's a lot of people sort of attracted to it a little naively now, perhaps. And, and I know the government have, you know, recently announced, you know, the, an initiative to look at commercialising university IP, which is great. But, but I think we need to go into it with a realistic view um, uh, of the world. And, and I think also our position in the world, a lot of people would disagree or criticise this point, but I think we're a pretty small country with 1% of the world market. And, you know, trying to build a company in Australia to feed that market is really difficult. You've got to focus on an international market. And it's a lot, possibly a lot easier for companies coming from overseas where they, you know, in the US, for example, their market is right next to them. All the big players are right next to them. And mm. so I think there's some limitations. Of, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but I think we have to be realistic about where we sit in the world. And a lot of people get critical because we, you know, these companies end up going overseas and they say we're exporting IP. But I think there's a little bit of realism got to come into that. That's probably sometimes when I get a little frustrated. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, I suppose given your role, you deal with founders and entrepreneurs all the time. Uh, you see them come and go. Um, this is a kind of a standard question that I'm asking everyone, and it's just interesting to compare answers. Um, but if a brand new founder come to you tomorrow, what what would you tell them? What one bit of advice would you give them that would slightly increase their chances of success? Oh, look, I think, you know, depending on what they're trying to do, but I'm assuming most of them want to raise money. That's probably the start for them. And the, the advice I give is to understand the investor and what they're looking for and then try to tailor their pitch to meet the investor's needs. I think a lot of them, and I see a lot of inventors and founders out of universities, which is probably even one step further removed. Mm. But, you know, they've got to understand you know, how if they're looking at venture capital, how venture capital firms work, how they, how these managers are rewarded and remunerated, you know, the reality is, is they've got to show for a venture firm, they've got to show a lot of upside. They've got to show that ability to return, you know, at least 10 times the money that's invested because they've got to, that if they are successful, they've got to make up for the failures that that VC fund has, as well as the management fees they have. And and VCs only make a lot of money if they're very successful and they they share in the upside. So, but you know, and then again, if it's a, a, a high net worth investor, a family office, they might have a different bent on on the way they look at investments. You know, so so just really understand. It's the old story: understand your customer, right? And so, mm. if you're raising money, well, your your investor is your customer at that point of time too. So. Um, if you don't understand your customer, you're not going to be successful. So I, I think that's that's the probably advice I'd have. I see a lot of pitches that are just not tailored or, or, you know, that they might focus too much on the technology. These people are in love with the tech because they've been working on this piece of technology, but 
in the end, the technology is possibly the least important thing. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, the market and the customers that they have and the, the upside is probably more important. Could we be doing something better as a community? And if so, what area would make the biggest improvement? Yeah, look, I, I, I think if you look at, I, I sort of look at that, you know, you could say ecosystem. I kind of like to look at it as an innovation supply chain, right? <laughs> you know, and, I, and if, if anyone's ever done supply chain theory, you know, one of the, the central parts of that is that if there's any bottleneck in the supply chain, the whole chain is broken, the whole chain is disrupted. And so if you start right at the start, it's that source of invention and um, be it the entrepreneur or, or be it the uh, inventor. I, I, look, I don't, I don't really know if, particularly in research organisations, the culture is there or the reward systems are there to properly motivate and support these people. You know, they've traditionally been supported by the old publish or perish paradigm. And But it's all very well to change the reward system, but we've got to give them the people around them. You know, so one of the things we kind of suggested in the government review is this idea of having entrepreneurs in residence, you know, who can assist researchers um, mm. in this journey and so that's, you know, the, that initial phase. But then, you know, you do need the other people around. You know, it's, it's, it's finding ways to, you know, getting all the, the uh, systems right, you know, the uh, employee share schemes, you know, getting systems to be able to bring back experienced talent to help companies, getting the, the, the rewards in there for people to invest money. And, and I'm not saying there are no systems that do that. We have, you know, the early stage investment company scheme now designed to try to encourage investment, you know, but it's really taking a holistic view, not just saying this is one thing wrong and looking right through that whole supply chain and, and trying to get the whole chain to be efficient. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love that answer that you comparing it to a, a supply chain. Just to follow up on that, you might have just touched on this briefly, but where are some of those bottlenecks that you see? Yeah, look, I, I, I think... You know, and this relates to things, and I didn't say it, but this government policy as well, right? I mean, mm. I'm not talking about government necessarily throwing money, but policy. But um, I, I think the government should take the same approach. But, but as I say, I think I think some of those, you know, that early stage funding is really hard because it's very high risk. And why would anyone who's rational and has money to invest, invest money at a riskier point in time unless there's a reward there? So... Mm. So, you know, that might relate to tax incentives to do it, which the government, you know, has tried to do, you know, and, and capital gains tax breaks and things like that. But then, you know, then it's about having the appropriate skills. But but then as we go forward, you know, being able to raise large amounts of money and, um, uh, you know, having the, the support networks and the schemes to assist that. I, I think, you know, at the moment for me that there's a bottleneck very early in getting, you know, that early funding of stuff. But there's also when you get later down the track to when you really need large amounts of money. I think a lot of companies look to the ASX because that's the place they can raise a big chunk of money. Mm. I don't think necessarily for a lot of them that's the right place to be because often a lot of them are very early and they they end up getting there and they're sort of getting in limbo, you know, beholden to their share price. And um, so I think there's they're probably the two main bottlenecks I see mm. at early stage capital end and the 
you know, that later expansion, what I call expansion capital. When they've got a product on the market, they've got some customers, they might be in that early million dollar a year revenue, but growing to a $50 million a year revenue company is a huge challenge. And, you know, that's that expansion capital where you need significant input of capital. If I was to open, just open it up now for you to talk about anything, there's something that you think about on a daily basis, something that you're really passionate about, just something that you think absolutely needs to make it into this series about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem and the future of the ecosystem. Does anything come to mind? Well, look, I think if I was, um, if I was telling the story of the you know, Australian startup ecosystem, I, I'd probably see, as I said, those, and it wasn't just our exits, but that period of 2014, 2015 of being really pivotal. You know, we, we go through cycles and we had the global financial crisis in, you know, 2008. And after that, the whole, and I, I tend to look at things a lot about the money, right? The money, money makes things happen, but mm. the whole financial market's kind of contracted and, Super funds moved away from startups and venture capital. You know, the venture industry contracted, and I think the industry was in a lot of trouble. And then in 2014, we had the Fibrotech deal with Shire. In 2015, Spinifex deal with Novartis and Dr. Reddy's acquired Hatchtech. But on top of that, we also had Star Pharma signing a deal with AstraZeneca worth $650 million. Atlassian did an IPO on NASDAQ which was the largest float, you know, of an Australian company on the US market. So we had a lot of really positive things happen. And on the back of that, I just felt the whole ecosystem change. And and so, the you know, the government then committed significant resources, um, you know, the Medical Research Future Fund, you know, in 2014, but and, and that National Innovation and Science Agenda, December 2015, you know, superannuation funds kind of, came back to the sector. Even universities changed. Historically, you know, universities were really focused on research and teaching, which is appropriate. But on the back of that, I think a lot of people started saying, hey, you know, we can make money out of early stage innovation. And universities themselves saw uh, students as a more of a strategic asset and started to put incubators and accelerators into place. You know, and we had programs like Incubate at Sydney and Cicada Innovations and yeah. on program at CSIRO. But every every research organization is now affiliated with an incubator or an accelerator. So, and, and then on the back of that, venture funds started to get formed. You know, the government committed to the biomedical translation fund program, which formed three large managers in the biotech space. But we've had, you know, over the years now, massive raising from Blackbird and Airtree and and, and these significant funds. You know, so I see that as, the, I guess, a pivotal time. Something I take pride in as Uniseed because I see us having a really important role in that. You know, not the only catalyst for it, but, you know, one of the catalysts that, that I think really changed things. And, and, and that has continued to, despite COVID, I mean, the, the, the venture industry and the startup industry has continued to grow. And, and a lot of these incubators, you know, that are, uh, and accelerators that have evolved have come post that as well. So I think there's been this real groundswell that's, and growth in this industry. And that might be why originally you said to me, you know, a lot of people see the industry starting, you said 2010, 2012. Mm. 
you know, I think that sort of aligns pretty well with that. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.